You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. All right, Zechariah 1 is where we are at. Today we get into something that a lot of people know a little bit about because uh, it's made its way into pop culture. It's the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? If you've ever, I don't know, followed X-Men, then at least in X-Men you've heard of them. Or if you've read the book of Revelation, you're aware of them. Or if you've seen it somehow used in all other kinds of mythologies, this is kind of like a staple crazy image that the Bible uses. But like with many things in Revelation, all these weird beings we keep thinking, a lot of times we're like, yeah, John just came up with all this stuff or was having visions of all this stuff. We've never heard of any of this before. Not the case. All this really is found in the Old Testament. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse start in Zechariah. Zechariah has a vision, and within that vision, he sees four horses, and he's going to take it and tweak it. But before we look at all the tweaks, let's just look at what the original uh, introduction to these four horsemen is about, because we only find them in Zechariah and Revelation. So I'm going to read a little bit tonight. I have a few passages. We're going to read through Zechariah 1, 8 through 12, and then hop a little bit. So here's where the four four horsemen first show up. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And let me find where I left you. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. We're not done with them. We jump to six. If you're reading in your Bibles, hop to chapter six. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the, uh, the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and, and said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. 
after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. All right, strange passage. Uh, if we don't look a lot to all the other kind of missed Bible books, books of the Bible, a lot of times we think that Revelation is like the only weird one. Obviously, there's a little bit of kind of apocalyptic feeling in, in this one as well. But now we've met the four horses in their original form in Zechariah, and it leaves us asking, what on earth are these things? And what Zechariah was just told is that essentially, you know, if, if a normal angel is the UPS guy of the spiritual world, delivers your mail, God said this, I'm bringing it to you, then the four horsemen of the spiritual world are the policemen. <laughs> They're basically out on patrol. They're going out into the earth and making sure that everything's okay. Uh, they're checking the state of the world. And what these particular ones found is, hey, uh, we checked everywhere because they represent, we just saw north, south, east, west. This is the second time we've come across this um, statement in Revelation. We had the four living creatures who encompassed all directions of the earth. Now we have the policemen of the divine realm encompassing all directions of the earth. And they check out the earth and they come back to the chief policeman, God, and they say, hey, we checked it out. Everything's at rest. But it's clearly not the kind of rest that Israel wants. Like, you can have bad rest, right? Like, think of, think of like, slavery. Uh, when slavery was especially a big thing in the States, you could have slavery and have rest because people maybe weren't fighting about it yet. But it wasn't rest. Because you had these people oppressed. You had these people basically like we've given up the fight right now in order to have some kind of peace, have some kind of rest. That's the state that Israel's in. They're in exile. They're underneath another country at this time. It's like we're just living this out. We're done kind of like wrestling with it right now. So is the nation at rest? Sure. But are they actually at peace? No, not at all. And so the angel of the Lord, one of these divine policemen, is like, God, how long before you answer your people Israel? Sure, things look like rest, but you know their story. You know they're waiting for you to come back and save them. They know, you know that any time now, they're, they're ready for that to happen. That is where the policemen of the spiritual world begin. And then John wants to take it a step further in Revelation 6. This is our other big reading, and then we'll go from there. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, so this is Jesus the Lamb, the slain Lamb. He's opening seals on a scroll so he can unravel it. Every time he opens it, something new happens. Seven seals, this is the second. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. 
And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. These are the four horsemen. And I I apparently missed one part. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Kind of a mad irony there, right? The wrath of the Lamb. (laughs) Just imagine a sheep walking up to you like, bah, you know, hits you in the knee with its head or something. Nonetheless, this is the grand irony that that's being painted in Revelation. It's not the Lion of Judah, as we talked about last week, the Lion of Judah is a lamb. There is never a lion seen in Revelation. Only mentioned, but the lion is the lamb. And here this lamb is with its wrath. And it's chapters like this that scare the crap out of us, and so we don't want to read Revelation because it's just like too much to take in. So we're trying, yeah, I don't really get this. But I think when you embrace it, you actually find there's something going on here completely different. And it starts with Zechariah. Because in Zechariah's tale... We've got the patrolmen of the spiritual world. That does not seem to be what's going on here. We've got the white horse in this case. He carries a bow and wears a crown. He seems to be representing war and royalty. He's seen conquering people left and right. In fact, it's really weird language it uses about him. It's that he came out conquering and to conquer. What does that even mean? Like, ah, I conquered, and all right, let's just conquer everything. Like, he's ready to just destroy everything. There's even a political kind of, like, victoriousness felt to the horse being white, like a king riding the royal kind of horse. You got the bright red horse's driver who... Uh, the rider who carries a great sword and, and takes away peace from everyone. He's causing everyone to murder one another. 
Uh, you even feel the anger as you look at the horse's bright red coat like it's steaming. You got the black horse's rider who, who carries a currency tool, which seems a little less threatening than a sword. What are you going to do, bash someone with that? But nonetheless, he's carrying this, this currency tool, and he starts to change the currency that everyone's living in. The inflation's going on. They change things. So, hey, for now on, if you want a quart of wheat, that's going to cost you an entire day's pay. And so the poor people begin to suffer. It takes an entire day just to buy one element of what they need to cook something. Whereas this guy calls out, but uh, the oil and wine, the luxury stuff, the stuff the rich people can afford, whatever, keep that the same price. Don't make sure that the rich continue on just as they are, but make sure the poor people suffer. And so you got the black horse coming in and bringing all that. Then you got the pale horse. Rider is death himself, which throughout the Bible, Satan is called the Lord of death. He's the guy living in the after uh, in the underworld where all these souls are going to be sent, whether you call that Sheol or Hades, wherever the case may be. You've got this guy who is told that he can kill a fourth of the world population with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast attacks. Right behind him, you've got uh, the afterlife Hades just coming along as though like there's just bodies left on the ground and he's netting them up and throwing their souls into, into the afterlife. I mean, these are not pleasant pictures and it really messes us up because we're like, God, why are you sending these to us? <laughs> why would you do this? Because it all seems like this is like a big thing that God's like wanting to do. But we have to ask an important question. What are these horses? Because the horses of Zechariah were the good guys. They were the good cops doing their job, trying to make sure that justice was achieved, trying to fill the chief, fill God in on, on something that's wrong with the world so that he would know where to focus his attention. These are the good guys. Why? In Revelation, do they not appear that way at all? They appear like they're corrupt cops. And I suggest to you that that's because they are. John loves to take things from the Old Testament to start feeding the story he's telling, but then he adds twists onto them. You see, a lot of times when we read Revelation, this is the picture we have in our mind. Like, it's hard to imagine these people, these four horsemen as like, good guys because of all the evil things it seems like they're doing but like we try to paint them so that they look nice they look kind of noble in what they're doing and, and it's like okay so even though they're scary like god we can kind of get behind what you're doing here i honestly suggest that when you read this passage what you should have in mind about these four guys is a picture much more like that <laughs> They are hungry for blood. They want to see people suffer. They want the destruction of humanity. If the ones in Zechariah are the good cops, these guys are the corrupt cops of the spiritual world. Yes, they're still driving the police car. Yes, they're still within their jurisdiction, but the pain on the police car is off, and the riders don't behave like cops at all. There's no peace in these creatures. There's not even a desire for peace in these creatures. They've come to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said that should not describe him. He says that describes Satan. Whereas God comes 
to bring life and to bring it abundantly. These beings are demonic in nature and they are meant to be parodies of the good guys. John actually, I think he does that elsewhere. Uh, He talks about a dragon, a first beast, and a second beast. And some commentators are like, we think that John's trying to do a parody here of the Holy Trinity. You got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Satan also has his own kind of like dark version of himself. But in this case, we see that these are, these are demonic parodies. So when we come to this question, this creates two, big, two, two more questions that I want to address before we close out. Because you look at a picture like that, you're like, okay, so if these are demonic, then two things. Number one... Isn't Jesus the guy who rides the white horse? (laughs) Right? Because we see that in Revelation. And then two, isn't Jesus commissioning these demons? Every time he opens a seal, one goes out. So how do we deal with this in our minds? If, If these guys are the bad guys, why does Jesus seem connected to them? I think we just need to understand these questions better. So I want to help you understand this better. And I think it'll help you understand God better and even much of the stories you read in the Bible. First off, let's address that first question. Isn't Jesus the rider on the white horse? Imagine that this is the first time you have ever read Revelation. You have no idea that 10 chapters later, Jesus is going to show up on a white horse. When you are told the description of this white horse, is Jesus the first thing that comes to your mind? (laughs) If so, you might want to recalibrate your understanding of Jesus a little bit because he happens to be a lamb sitting in the same room breaking seals. (laughs) I think this is all part of John's genius. He wants us to think that this could be Jesus because he wants us to recognize that Satan walks around trying to pretend that he's a good guy. White all throughout Revelation is usually a good thing, a positive thing. When you come across the, anything white in Revelation, it's usually representing God's victory or purity or holiness or righteousness. So John right here is taking that color, putting it in your face and saying, do you still just attribute this color to everything? That is God. Or can you look past that and see that Jesus is not riding this horse? Because this is what the Jews wanted. They wanted someone to come and take down Jerusalem so that Jesus or whoever this Messiah figure would be would take up political power. They were hoping for holy war. They were hoping that the Jews would be back on top. And that takes a man on a white horse ready to destroy. And so John paints that picture for them but then starts to show us, hey, this version of this white horse, he parades around with death himself, with Satan. If you think that's the way that Jesus does things, you may be confusing him with the Antichrist. So often we want to take that bloodied little lamb. It's like, okay, so he's not a lion, he's a lamb. Well, let's take that lamb and shove it on the horse because that's still easier to worship. That's still better to follow. There was one guy, uh, a famous pastor, who some years ago said, like, I, I, I need the pride-fighting Jesus of Revelation who's ready to destroy because I can't worship someone that I can beat up. 
And another theologian answers, like, you already beat up Jesus. <laughs> he already died on a cross. If you can't worship that, then you're missing the image of Christ and the Lamb. I think John wants us to feel this tension. Can you look at the white horse but still see deeper to recognize that the Antichrist is on it? Or are you blinded by appearances? Can you still tell Satan is Satan when he disguises himself as an angel of light? Or do we join with the world's proclamations that this white horse of royalty and war, that's our true Savior? That the kingdom of the world That's the way, the truth, and the life. That our allegiance is with president and king and country. Is that the way we go? Or do we stop and recognize that the lamb is still in the room? Do we remain skeptical of what we're looking at until we see the real Jesus? Because when the real Jesus shows up, like John's ready to like really lay out what the real Jesus on the white horse looks like. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I know that sounds violent, but you would be surprised how much nonviolence is actually there. This king doesn't wear just one crown because he's been given a little bit of, of leeway to rule over something. This king wears diadems, plural. This king doesn't make war because he's petty and angry and just wants to conquer because he's greedy. This king makes war with righteous judgment. In other words, like he can't sin if he has to do anything concerning judgment over another. This king's garment isn't dripping with the blood of his enemies. It's dripping with his blood. And the wrath of the winepress of the fury of God, actually, if you look at that the way Revelation talks about it elsewhere, that's all the martyrs who died, their blood. Jesus is covered in his blood and the blood of his followers, not the blood of people he's killing. His entire army is made out of true white horses and his weapon is his mouth. With one word, God speaks things into existence. So Jesus has the power to speak it out. And John uses very specific words saying this guy on the white horse is Jesus. He's faithful and he's true. True. This is the real one. All right, so the other question really quick. All right, so let's say like, okay, so Jesus isn't on that white horse. He's not connected to these, these guys right here. Fine. But he's still going on to kind of break seals, which makes the demons come out and afflict people. What do we do with that? Is he commissioning these demons or no? I guess I would say kind of if, if you're looking at it the wrong way. It's not quite what you think. In the Zechariah passage, 
you see that the angel knows that God's people are hurting. In the Revelation passage, you see the martyrs say, God, we're hurting. So he's still working with the same idea even there. And so God knows that he needs to bring judgment. Not only has Israel been calling out like for justice for a long, long time, but these martyrs are like, how many of us more have to die before you step in? So God has to do something. He has to bring justice. He has to bring judgment. God's judgment, though, is often caused by God letting go of something. For example, the Bible writers thought that the flood was caused by God opening up windows where water already was. In other words, God wasn't like creating water and setting it down. Instead, something that he had ordered, this crystal ceiling over the planet is what the ancient people thought. This crystal ceiling was there for order. It was there to keep them safe from an ocean that was above the crystal ceiling. And the way that is described of the flood coming is God just letting go of the crystal ceiling. It's something he's not doing that causes the judgment. He has the protection there. He has the order there. But the world has fallen into chaos, and so he allows it to live a life of chaos and removes the order, turns them over to the chaos that they wanted. Israel could only survive wars if God went with them. He was their protection. Sometimes they went to war without God, and guess what? They lost. When God's protection was removed from Israel, when his presence left the temple, Israel was turned over to Babylon. Babylon attacked them, and though nobody could conquer Israel before, as soon as God leaves, they're attacked and they're conquered. When Paul sees that somebody's been sinning a very intense sin, he's sleeping with his stepmom, they're like, okay, Paul says you need to turn him over to Satan. The idea is right now he's in God's protection and he's continuing to sin. Turn him outside of God's protection. Turn him over to his sin. Turn him over to the guy that sin belongs with, Satan. And maybe life will be so bad with Satan that he'll actually think, I need God's protection back. I need Jesus. And he'll run back to you and get saved. So a lot of the judgment that happens in the Bible, if you pay really close attention to the way things are worded, it's not so much God like coming in with fire and brimstone. It's simply God letting go of order the way that it was meant to be and watching the world experience the chaos that it was already experiencing. Even the wrath of the Lamb, where stars are falling from heaven and the earth is splitting apart and all these things that happen at the very end in Revelation. I don't know if you noticed, but like Colossians tells us that Jesus holds the world together. So when everything starts falling apart in creation, it's simply Jesus letting go. The only people that are left didn't want Jesus anyways. They didn't want God. They kept telling him to go away. So he lets go. He goes away. And you get exactly what happens without God. Everything falls into chaos. It's all gone. Even these four horsemen is Jesus letting go of something. The idea behind the horses is like they want to kill. They want to get out. They always have, but they haven't been able to because God has been protecting us from them. But in this case, Jesus turns the world over to what it wants. They want kings and wars. They got it. Here's the white horse. You can have them. They want anger and murder. 
Here's the red horse. You can have him. They want greed and oppression. Here's the black horse. You can have him. You want Satan himself, death itself, Hades? If you're going to worship Satan, here's Satan. You can have him. And yet, even as the horses attack, God's still protecting. The white horse has a crown, but it's not a diadem like Jesus, so it doesn't have as much authority. The pale horse is only allowed to touch a fourth of the earth, which means it wants to kill everything. But God's like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you go that far. And even the red horse is only permitted to do what he wants. So, people cry out, God, when are you going to uh, bring us justice? God is showing us time and time again, like, I, I bring justice by letting go of order, by turning the world over to the chaos it desires. And I only do that when things are beyond repair. Look, if you think that God is that old famous sermon about sinners in the hand of an angry God, if that's what God looks like to you, then you miss the patience, the kindness, and the hopefulness of the God of the Bible, who, yes, will bring justice because things are wrong and justice needs to be found. But he is so, so patient, more patient than we could ever be. I mean, you got a problem with someone for one week and you're ready to like, God, where are you? Come save me. But God will wait for not just years, but hundreds of years to centuries before he steps in because he sees all possible futures, all possible outcomes. And if there is a shred of hope that something will turn around, that people will come to him, he is patient enough to hold judgment off. The flood, when God brought the judgment of the flood, the world was so corrupt that you just got to wonder how many hundreds of years they've been getting worse and worse and worse. God waited until there was just one family left. (laughs) This is the one family that that still is following me. Fine. I guess it's time to let it go because this is the foreseeable future. If I save this one family, maybe we can do this right. Sodom and Gomorrah, you don't get to the point where you're just going to do the things that they did overnight. Things would have had to get worse and worse and worse to the point that God says, all right, I'm going down there. And if I can find just 10 righteous people, I won't do anything to it. But if I don't, it's beyond repair at this point. Nineveh. Nineveh was the opposite. If I tell them to turn, maybe they will. God tells them you need to repent. They repent and they're saved. God is as patient as anyone could ever possibly be. So as the martyrs cry out, where are you? When will you bring justice? Here we are 2,000 years later seeing just how patient God is. It's not time yet. Things aren't so falling apart that it can't be redeemed. I wonder too, like with the way the world looks today, I'm like, this still isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Who knows how long God will wait? Maybe a few more thousand years. Because he is that hopeful. If I can keep getting my people, if I can make 
more family members, more sons, more daughters as they keep following after me. That is worth waiting for. That is worth adding as much patience as I need to because I love them so much. I just refuse to let this go until I've got as many as I can. That's a loving father. And how bizarre that on a story of the four horsemen that that is the point that we would end on. Where our minds are usually thinking, oh, God's going to bring all this violence and kill us all. Now we're in the place of just, wow, just how patient God is. Just how long he's willing to wait. And so, as we close out, I know, a longer message today, I pray that you catch a glimpse not of the Antichrist looking to destroy everything around him, but of a bloodied lamb, not with the blood of people who he's been killing, but with his own blood, who died for you, who loves you, And is there for you in every moment that there's nothing that he's missed about your life. He's meticulous about you. He knows every hair on your head and he's still holding this all together. The next few songs that we're going to get into worship uh, are going to be some songs that I think maybe the early church needed to kind of submit themselves to singing. The songs like It's Well With My Soul, When We All Get to Heaven. These hopeful songs of remembering things can be tough right now. Things can be difficult. And I know in America we don't see a lot of martyrdom uh, as much as other countries would. But we join with these martyrs under the throne, a hopeful expectation of what God will do because he loves us, because he cares about us. And the hopeful expectation of all who are not yet saved to receive Christ and come to him. So as we get ready to sing those songs, uh, we open up communion to you tonight in which you can take a, a piece of bread, dip it in the juice and then partake of it. And a theme that I want to just kind of instill in your mind as you do that tonight is to just recognize like this right here. This is the blood of Jesus. This is not representative of all the judgment that he will bring on others as as they're removed this is his blood saying this is for the others this is for those who never cared about me before these are this is for those who sin against me every day that i long for them that i wait for them that i want them too to be saved It's a blood, yes, for you, but it's also a blood for those around you, including those who drive you nuts. So as you come and partake of communion uh, tonight and sing these songs with us, let's just uh, let's join with the saints of old in, in worshiping God.